Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. We'll get to the recording of this Sunday's message in just a moment, but first I want to ask, are you a listener who does not attend in person on Sundays, but who would be interested in meeting with other St. Paul's listeners in your area for a small group? Right now we have a couple people connected to St. Paul's who live in the New Haven shoreline area who would like to start an in-person small group you know, to meet for fellowship and discussion of the previous week's message. And so if you happen to be from the New Haven shoreline area and you would be interested in that, please email me to let me know. Ryan at stpaulswired.org. That's stpaulswired.org. And if you're not in that area, but you're in another area and you'd be interested in meeting with other listeners there, Email me to let me know what area you're from, and maybe we can put something together. In fact, even if you're not interested in a small group, but you're just a regular listener who doesn't attend in person, we'd love to hear from you just to know that you're out there, because uh, we don't really know how many people listen to this. So if you're willing, we'd love to hear from you. And as always, we'd love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. All right, good morning. So this is our third week now in our series, Walking in the Light, Lessons from 1 John. And we're going to be picking up right where we left off last week, which is 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, so if you want to follow along in your own Bible, I encourage you to turn there now. Remember, 1 John is right near the end of the Bible. It goes 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, Revelation. So just go to Revelation and then back up a little bit before then. It's a little book. 1 John. So starting in chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But as you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised to us, eternal life. 
All right. Um, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Okay, a lot, a lot to cover in there. If you've been here over the last two weeks, hopefully you remember that 1 John was written to a church that had recently been through some controversy. It had been through a church split. A group of people had left the church because they disagreed with old Apostle John's teaching. And uh, they left to go and spread their own ideas. And old Apostle John, who was probably in his 90s at this point, uh, he wrote 1 John in order to encourage those who had stayed and to remind them of what was true. Now, there's a lot of ground to cover in what we just read there, but I want to organize our reflection around the two commands that John gives in the passage because uh, those two commands are just as relevant for us today as they were for the first century church. So, number one, do not love the world or anything in the world. Now, I think we got to be very careful about how we understand that command right there. Because some people hear that and they make the mistake of thinking that John is saying something like, don't care about the physical world or anything that inhabits it. Only care about the spiritual, right? God, afterlife, human souls. God, afterlife, human souls. That's it. That's all that matters. And people who interpret this command that way uh, can dismiss the value of things like taking care of the environment or pursuing science and medicine or things just like enjoying music and the arts because, hey, we're not supposed to love the world or anything in the world. But here's what we have to understand. When John uses that word world, it is not a synonym for creation. It's something different. The physical world, the Bible tells us, is a good thing. After all, it was God's idea. Throughout the story of creation in Genesis, God keeps repeating, it is good, right? He creates sun, moon, and stars, and says, that's good. Uh, birds and, and fish and animals, that's good. Land and sea and sky, that's good, that's good. And then he creates human beings, and he says, he looks at the whole thing, and he says, oh, that's very good. So God loves the physical world. It was his idea, which means the physical world is worthy of appreciation. It's worthy of our study and our enjoyment, it's good. It's also worthy of our care and our concern. And remember, the good news of the gospel is not just that, you know, God is going to rescue us for heaven, although, you know, it's part of it that he's going to rescue our souls, right? But the good news of the gospel is that God is actually restoring the physical world as well. He doesn't just want to chuck the whole project that he began with creation. He wants to redeem the physical world. And that's one of the things that Jesus' resurrection teaches us, right? Jesus did not just rise to life in some sort of spiritual body, but in a physical body. 
So when John says the world, he's getting at something else other than physical matter. And the way I would put it is the world is a way of referring to the patterns of dysfunction that human sin creates. The patterns of dysfunction that human sin creates. And that should be clear to us because John describes what he means by everything in the world. Right? And what does he mean? He means the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, I did a little bit of study on that word life there, the word that's translated as life. And most of the time, when John uses the word for life, he uses a different word. And so there are a lot of translators that argue that this word would be more accurately translated as the pride of possessions. The pride of possessions. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of of possessions. And when you think about it, all three of those things have to do with the same thing, which is the pursuit of money and wealth. Lust refers to that longing for money and for wealth, and the pride of possessions refers to that sense of superiority that we get if we have a lot of stuff, right? If we have a lot of wealth. And so this is what John means when he says, do not love the world or anything in the world. A worldly person is a person whose master is money. It is a person who does not hunger and thirst for righteousness, as Jesus says, is the blessed way of living, right? But a person who hungers and thirsts for wealth and products, consumer products. Uh, a worldly person is not a person who finds their identity and self-worth in God, but in the size of their bank accounts. Their sense of self is not in who they are, but in what they own. That's what it means to be a worldly person. And the world that John is talking about here is the dysfunctional pattern that arises as people give themselves over to the lust for wealth and the pride over possessions. Now that pattern, when it manifests itself in the world, it usually looks like things like this. It looks like a few people getting really rich and a bunch of people being taken advantage of. The multitudes going underpaid and overworked and never getting any vacation time. It looks like people being cheated and stolen from. And in its ugliest forms, it looks like literal slavery. When this happens, the world reduces people down to nothing more than tools for generating wealth. Like Pharaoh using the Israelites to build, build up the cities of Egypt. Or American, early America, uh, using Africans to pick their cotton Three to five sacks a day, 75 to 100 pounds each sack. No pay for that in the hot sun, day after day. No choice, no, no autonomy or agency in the matter. People reduced down to nothing more than product producers and wealth generators. Nothing more than tools to be used. That is what worldliness looks like. And John is saying, do not love that system. Do not support it. 
Do not be complicit in the mistreatment of human beings who are made in God's image. Don't value wealth and possessions more than justice, because justice is the will of God, and everything that is not the will of God will one day pass away. Now, we don't know for sure, but it seems likely to me that one of the reasons that the church split was that those who left did love the worldly system. Maybe their gospel was what's sometimes called the prosperity gospel today, which is not really a gospel at all. It's the false teaching that what God really wants for you is for you to be rich. That's his main concern. Now, there are always prosperity preachers in every generation because they're telling people something that they want to hear, but what they're saying is not true. Be careful of them. Because what they're essentially saying is that what God really wants for you is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of possessions. Now, God does want you to have your needs met, and he does want you to experience real joy and real peace, absolutely. But making you rich, well, there's no reason to assume that's a priority for God. So, do not love the world or anything in the world. It's command number one. The second command can be found in verse 24. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. Now, just like with the first command, I feel like I want to begin by saying what this is not saying. Because it's another command that I think can be taken the wrong way. Some people hear this, and the impression they get is that it's saying something like, whatever you learned at first, you know, when you were a kid, a teenager, a college student, whatever you first heard about how to interpret the Bible, you know, about, about God, cling to that at all costs. Hold on to that no matter what. Don't ever question. Now, John is certainly telling us to hold fast to something that we've known since the beginning when we first started walking with Jesus, and we'll identify what that is in a moment. But he isn't saying that all of us should be holding exactly the same opinions on everything that we did when we were younger. Uh, a healthy faith is a, a faith that learns and grows over time, right? As we study the scriptures, as we walk with God, as we experience more of life, our perspective should develop. We should gain wisdom. We should grow. And when that happens, sometimes in that process, we end up having to discard old beliefs that we thought were true, but we have since learned actually don't align with the truth. In some cases, that is the faithful thing to do, right? The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. 
So what is Paul talking about here? Well, Paul is recognizing that coming to know God as he truly is, is a process. It's a process that we are undergoing, hopefully, throughout our entire lives. Adults should have a deeper knowledge of God than children do, right? When we're children, we have a certain way of thinking about things, and as we mature and grow, so should our understanding of, of God, right? And he says, now, as in right now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Now, what does that mean? Well, in those days, they didn't have mirrors like we have today. They were polished metal. So when you looked into a mirror, you did not clearly see yourself. What you saw was just kind of a dim reflection of your appearance, right? So what Paul is saying is that the view of God that we have right now is similar to the view that they would have had of themselves when they looked in a mirror. They would have an idea of who God was and everything, but it was a little cloudy, a little uh, undeveloped. And he says, one day we will see God face to face. There will be no more cloudiness at all. But that day will not come until either our death or until Christ returns. In the meantime, we're still learning. We're still growing. So if now we only see as a reflection in a mirror, we should be open to thinking differently about things, right? than we first did when we first came to faith. At least some things, right? Part of the journey of faith is shedding false beliefs about, about, that we've had about God and about Scripture and increasing our knowledge of the truth. So it's just important to notice that no one sees God face to face the moment of conversion. And so no one's beliefs are perfect at that moment. We need to grow we need to develop. This reminds me of something that Jesus said to his disciples shortly before his crucifixion. He said, I have much more to tell you, but you cannot bear it right now. But when he comes, as in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. In other words, I've got more things to share with you. You don't have the full picture yet. But right now, you're not ready for it. You wouldn't be able to handle it if I told you everything. But the Holy Spirit is going to come, and he is going to guide you into more and more truth. And what I appreciate about what Jesus recognizes there is that people do need time to digest the truth. We just can't handle all of it at once, being the finite human beings that we are. Not even Jesus could give his disciples all the truth all at once. And so we shouldn't assume that everything we thought in our first days as a Christian was complete or total, totally accurate. And we shouldn't assume that faithfulness means holding on to all of the same views at all costs throughout our lives. The Spirit is still guiding us into all truth, right? So, Again, we've got to be careful how we understand the command, but it is telling us to hold fast to something that we have known since the beginning. And what is that? Well, it is the foundational belief that Jesus is the Christ. Right? John says, Who is the liar? 
It is the, whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the truth that must remain in us and that we must hold fast to. Jesus is the Christ, which means Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the King over all of creation. And that means that Jesus is worthy of our worship and that his way of doing things is the pattern that we should follow. His life and teaching should be what shapes our lives. And apparently, the people who had left that church denied that Jesus was the Christ. Maybe they were saying something that you often hear people saying today, which is, well, I don't really believe that Jesus is God, but I do believe that he was a good moral teacher. Something like that. And John is saying, do not fall for that. If our faith does not rest on the foundation that Christ is Lord, then we do not have a Christian faith. There should be a lot of room for a lot of disagreement over a lot of things in churches. But this is definitely a non-negotiable for anybody who wants to teach or lead in any capacity or even call themselves a Christian, right? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Christ. Um, Paul puts it this way in Colossians. I love this passage. The Son, referring to Jesus, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Amen? Right. You can't get a higher view of Jesus than that, right? Again, there's a lot of room for a lot of disagreement over a lot of things among teachers and leaders and people who call themselves Christian, but one thing that cannot be open for debate is, is Jesus really God in the flesh? Is he really Lord? Is he really the creator and sustainer of all things? That can't be up for debate. That shared faith in Jesus as supreme is supposed to be what holds a church together. As Paul says, right, in him all things hold together. If a church is not bound primarily by the belief that Jesus is supreme, then it's not really the church. And it's probably bound by something else which is not a healthy thing to be bound by. That is supposed to be what holds us together. Now notice, John calls those who teach that Jesus is not the Christ, antichrists. And that's a word that carries a lot of connotations with it in the popular imagination, right? Antichrist. So let, let's talk briefly about that word. Christians throughout history have tended to expect that a particular individual will arise at some point and he will gain power, probably power over the entire world, 
um, and he will be opposed to Christ in the way of Christ, and his rise to power will be one of the last events that takes place uh, before Christ returns. And this expected villain is called the Antichrist. And at least in my experience, there are usually Christians who kind of want to speculate about, is the Antichrist alive today, and who might he be, and look at certain political figures and world leaders and that sort of thing and go, oh, maybe that's, that's the one. Back in, the, in uh, uh, the 80s, you know, there were Christians who were like, oh, it's Gorbachev, and you know, the, the birthmark that he's got, that's the mark of the beast. And uh, they, they would say stuff like that, you know. And um, it seems to me that John is discouraging that type of thinking here, right? Because instead of emphasizing this idea of one Antichrist, he talks about many Antichrists who have already come. And the people that he calls Antichrists, they aren't world leaders, right? But they're the false teachers who left the community and are saying that Jesus is not really Lord, right? These are antichrists. So, is the antichrist here today? Well, in a sense, yes. And there have been antichrists going all the way back to the first century of the church. Antichrists are people who deny that Jesus is Lord and who reject the way of Jesus, right? These are antichrists. So, don't concern yourself about whether the Antichrist is here. Concern yourself with remaining faithful to Christ even as the Antichrists are at work in the world right here and now. Now, I realize that some of us might be wondering, okay, well, why does John say that we're in the last hour? The last hour. You know, that makes it sound like he really thought that Christ was coming again any moment. But here we are 2,000 years later, and Christ still hasn't returned. So, was John wrong? Or did he mean something else? How do we uh, respond to that? Well, I'll give you two possibilities. So, one way of answering this question is to say, well, John did mean that Christ's return was imminent, um, but he wasn't wrong about that from God's perspective, right? Because from God's perspective, a few thousand years isn't really that long. And if you think about the grand history of the world, it's a, it's a relatively short amount of time. So that's a possible answer. But I to su suggest another possibility, which is maybe what John means here is something more like persecution is imminent. Because when that word hour is used in Jesus' life, it refers to his crucifixion, right? He says, my hour has come when it's time for his crucifixion. So that word hour is associated with a time of intense tribulation and trial and suffering. Right? So maybe what John is saying here is something like, we know that a great trial is coming because even those who were among us are turning against us. 
And that does kind of fit with what we know about history because in the early centuries of the church, there were repeated times in the Roman Empire where the, there were flare-ups of persecution against Christians from the Roman authorities. Um, so, that's one possible way of understanding this. Okay? That by last hour, he means we're going to suffer some real pushback real soon. But whatever the case, however we understand that, the point for us today is this. Don't worry about the Antichrist. Worry about following Christ. And don't be deceived by the Antichrists that are already here. Instead of worrying about the Antichrist, focus on this. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. John says that when we first become followers of Jesus, we receive something which he calls the anointing. This is the Holy Spirit. And John is saying, listen to that Spirit. This is the Spirit that testifies to you that Jesus is Lord. Now, there are rational arguments that can be summoned to argue that Jesus is Lord. You know, arguments in defense of the resurrection and the way that there are prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus and that sort of thing. And that's, that's all valuable. But people don't usually come to believe that Jesus is Lord because they've gone through some kind of really thorough investigation. If that were how we came to know that Christ is Lord, then knowing that truth would only be for really intelligent people who are able to wade through a lot of information and do a journalistic investigation. Right? But that's not the way that God has set things up. He doesn't want the truth to only be accessible, the truth spiritually at least, to only be accessible to the brightest minds among us, right? So instead, something else is at work other than human rationality when we come to recognize that Jesus is Lord. And that something, John says, is the anointing, the Holy Spirit. And John is warning us, do not stop listening to that Spirit. Do not stop listening to that Spirit that first compelled you to believe that Jesus is Lord. Now, we live in a time where it's common for people who grew up in Christian churches um, to say, I'm deconstructing my beliefs. I hear that phrase all the time. I'm deconstructing my beliefs. And what, what they mean by that is I'm questioning the things that I used to regard as true, right? I'm reevaluating them. And... I want to be clear about this. That can actually be a really healthy thing. Because as I said earlier, no, none of us knows all of the truth from the beginning. We've got we to gotta grow in wisdom. We've got to learn. We can't even bear all the truth at once, right? So we learn over time through experience and study and walking with God. Healthy deconstruction, there's an old word for that, which is repentance. Right? It's the process, because repentance means the process of changing your mind. Right? 
So healthy deconstruction is a process of repentance. It's growing in our knowledge and love of the truth and walking in that. And as we do that, shedding false beliefs that we've had and turning more and more to the truth. But John is warning us of this. Do not deconstruct what the Holy Spirit has revealed. A healthy process of deconstruction should be discerning about what comes from the Spirit and what does not. Do not throw out what the Holy Spirit has already shown you, particularly about who Jesus is. Keep listening to that still small voice within you that tells you Jesus is Lord. Jesus is worthy of our worship. Jesus is good. He is supreme. He is the wisdom of God revealed. Keep listening to that voice. Don't let it be drowned out by the systems of the world, by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of possessions. Listen to that voice. Remain in him. That is where true life is found. Let's pray. Lord, we do want to remain in you. Lord, for every one of us who has had that experience of coming to know you as Lord, uh, we pray that you would help us to, um, to keep listening to your voice, that as we grow in the truth that we would never turn away from what you have truly revealed to us, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to resist the temptations of the world, the love of money. Help us not to be mastered by that, Lord. Help us to find our self-worth in you and who you say that we are, Lord, your image bearers, beloved by you, sons and daughters of God. Help us to keep listening. In Jesus' name, amen.